Our scripture reading for today comes from Acts 6, verses 1 through 6. Now during those days when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected from the daily distribution of food. And the twelve called together the whole community of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Therefore, the, therefore friends, select among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the spirit and of wisdom whom we may appoint to this task, while we, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and to serving the word. What they said pleased the whole community, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, together with Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Par Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And they, they had these men stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Nothing worse than reading scripture that has a bunch of names in it. It's the <laughs> toughest job around. Did good. But uh, I love this passage of scripture. Uh, and I've always been fascinated by this uh, story here that we have uh, from Acts, because this story plays into my very calling into ministry. Uh, and let me explain. Most of, many of you know that when I was first called to ministry, I was never going to be a senior pastor. I was always going to be an administrative pastor, an associate. That's what I felt my calling was, is to be uh, serving in administration. Um, and specifically, I was going to be a deacon in the Methodist church. Now, in the Methodist church, we have two types of clergy. We have deacons and elders. I know it's different in other denominations, but in the Methodist church, we have deacons and we have elders. They're both clergy. And let me kind of explain a little bit of the difference. An elder, which is what I am now, is typically a senior pastor, someone who serves in that role. They can serve other roles, but that's typically what it is. A deacon is never a senior pastor. A deacon has some sort of support role, whether it's administration like I did for a lot of years or children's ministry or uh, discipleship or some other type of servant ministry in that regard. That's what a deacon is. And you might not know this, but the story that we just read from Acts chapter 6 is where we get this idea of deacon. And we'll talk about that here in a minute. Uh, this choosing of these seven men for the ministry of deacon. This, this story was used, I used it often in the story of my calling. It deals with the administration of a food program uh, that the people called to help serve and support the apostles. This resonated with me because that was my calling. That's what I thought I would be doing. Now, most people see it as a great example of how the apostles delegated this role to others called to help wait tables and serve so that the apostles could then do what they had been called to and serve the word. Now, this story takes place in the very beginning of the church. In the first part of, chapter, of, of Acts, Luke wrote both the Gospel of Luke and Acts. Here in the first of Acts, we see the beginning of the church. The Spirit has come, and this church is uh, beginning to 
uh, be birthed right in front of our face. And, and what Luke does is he shows us both the good and the bad of the starting of this church. In fact, in chapter five, the, the chapter right before this chapter, we see some hiccups that took place in the beginning of the church. We see, uh, the, we read the story of Ananias and Sapphira. You might remember that story, Ananias and Sapphira. They were the couple, married couple. They, they had sold some land and brought money to the church and they lied about how much money they, money they had gotten for that land. And it, it says, the, the apostles asked them, you know, is, is this the truth of what you, what you sold the land for? And they said, yes, they lied and they dropped dead. That's not a great way to start the church, but that's what we have there. And, and, and Luke shows us the good things and the bad things about starting this new church. And, and, and that fascinates me, just reading about the starting of the church, both the good and the bad. But anytime you're starting something new, it, it's tough. Uh, I mean, we are in the process of trying to start a campus in Amarillo. And, and it's been so fascinating as we deal with these things uh, because there's all these decisions to be made and decisions from, you know, what color carpet to how are we going to structure worship to what staff do we have, all of these different things uh, as we're trying to start something new. And it can be overwhelming as a leader trying to make all these decisions and try to figure out and all these problems coming up. Uh, and so I can understand the 12 apostles being overwhelmed thinking we can't handle another issue. We need to delegate this out to someone who can help us. I understand that feeling, and, and I pray, just probably like they did, that we're making the right decisions. Um, but every time I read this story, I always had something nagging me in the back of my head, like I was missing something in the story. You ever felt like that before where you're working on a project or something and you're like, I feel like I'm missing something. I feel like I don't have all the, the, the pieces put together. I'm missing something important, something right in front of your face that, that you miss. It's like one of those pictures that you can, uh, that could be two different images at the same time. And initially you can only see one image and then, uh, then all of a sudden you see the, the other image. So how many of you see a picture of an old woman? Raise your hand. How many of you see a young woman looking away? How many of you can see both? <laughs> Some of you are like, what are you talking about? Yeah, so uh, the old woman, the, the line down there at the bottom is her mouth. The young woman looking away, that line is her necklace looking backwards. Can you see it? There becomes that moment when you, oh yeah, there it is. That aha moment. Okay, go to the next picture. Maybe this will help. How many of you see a rabbit? How many of you see a duck? How many of you can now see both? If you look, there you go. So again, it's that moment with that aha moment. Oh yeah, there it is. How did I miss that? And sometimes you, you see some image initially and then you see the other image and then you have a hard time going back to see the first image. But that's where it is. And so that's the way it was with me one day as I'm reading this text. I had that aha moment where I was like, I missed it. How did I miss it? So let's look at this text again. It says this. Now during those days... When the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. Now, I love systems. I love 
systems that help solve problems. I love when people come up with creative solutions to problems in society. Uh, That stuff excites me. I know I'm weird, but I love administration. I love job descriptions. I love procedure files. I love step one, step two, step three. That stuff is good stuff. I love that stuff. Now, I know for some of you, you hate it, but that's the way I am. And I loved how the disciples solved this problem. But as I was reading again one day, uh, a long time ago, this text, I was shocked by something that I had missed completely in all my years of reading this text, I realized that they had solved the wrong problem. I realized that they had solved the wrong problem. This was not a food distribution problem. That's the problem they tried to solve. That wasn't the issue. Now, some of you may see it, but let me rephrase the text to help you see the problem in a different light. Are you ready? Now, during those days when the disciples were increasing in number, The African-Americans complained against the whites because the widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. We don't have a food distribution problem, do we? That's not the issue. This isn't a food distribution problem. This is a racism problem. This is the issue. If it were a food distribution problem, then many different people across many segments would be complaining, not just one group. But the issue is deeper. And I wonder, how did I miss that all those years? This is where it gets interesting. This is a a mantra in leadership. If we've diagnosed the problem wrongly, more often than not, we will come up with the wrong solution. The wrong problem, wrong solution. If you have the wrong problem, then you have the wrong solution. We see this happening so often in the world today. We, we misdiagnose problems and we come up with solutions that usually don't fix the root issue. We're just solving surface issues. I've seen this happen so often. We, we misdiagnose the problem and we come up with a solution that doesn't help solve the problem. If we only address the food distribution issue and leave aside the racism issue, we will not get to the heart of the matter. And that's important. Now, the racism going on in this story is not between blacks and whites. It's between Hellenist, uh, Hebrew-speaking, and Greek-speaking groups of widows. And so that's at the issue. So there's this that is shaping how different people are being treated. And specifically, it's dealing with Widows. Now, this is important. Where you see the word widow, you need to pay attention. And typically in Scripture, what happens is we're dealing with three different groups. They're usually put together, widows, orphans, and resident aliens. And typically when uh, we read, especially in the Old Testament, when these groups are sectioned out, God is speaking to the people saying, you have not done this well in the treatment of widows, orphans, and resident aliens, and my wrath is about to fall on you. So this is just a clue. Anytime you're reading scripture, pay attention when those groups are mentioned. And that's important. So here we have this certain group of widows that are being neglected. There was bias towards one group over another. See, we don't just deal with racism in our day. 
We dealt with it even back in the first century. Even then, it was an issue. But we will always have issues of racism in society. There will always be issues of bias. But how do we deal with it? That's the issue. Until Christ returns, all of us deal with issues of bias. The question for us is, how are we going to acknowledge our biases and then move forward from them? Because if we misdiagnose the problem, we'll come up with the wrong solution. As Christians, we need to be honest with ourselves when we deal with others who are different than us. We need to examine our motives and our biases as we come up with solutions to problems. We need to listen to those who are different. But we also have to understand, just because someone is different, they might not even have the wisdom to figure out the problem either. This takes hard work. And we typically don't like hard work when it comes to these issues. We would just rather them go away. This isn't an easy fix. This takes time. In our society, we, we like, all of us like quick fixes. Give me the pill to swallow to help me to lose 15 pounds. I'd rather do that than to have to actually watch what I eat and exercise. We like the quick fixes. We don't get to the heart of the matter. But as Christians, hear me, church, we are about transformation. Transformation of ourselves that God has done through us so that we can offer grace and hope and transformation for others. That takes hard work. And it begins with our own biases, our own issues that we have. We must take seriously the words of Jesus. What does Jesus say? He says this in Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. This is so important for us as people of faith. Let me say this. This is so important for us as people of faith. We are quick to judge others on their problems, aren't we? We're not so quick to take the log out of our own eye. Jesus says this. If you're going to judge someone else, you better have your own house in order first. You better take the log out of your eye first. Then you can see clearly to help your neighbor take the speck out of their eye. You see that? That's so important for us. If we get the wrong problem, we come up with the wrong solution. If we misdiagnose the problem because we can't see clearly, we will come up with the wrong solution. We will be quick to post on Facebook how wrong somebody is until we look at ourselves first and make sure we look at what we are doing wrong. That's addressing our bias first so that we can address other. It, it doesn't mean we never judge. It just means we have to get our house in order first before we start complaining about someone else's house. Make sense? That's what Jesus says. So let's go back to our text because I believe there's more to this story. And I think that Luke wants us to see something too that is right before our face and many times we've missed it. And it has to do with the Greek word that is translated as deacon. And the word is diakoneo. You can see it up there. Diakoneo. It means to be an attendant. That is to wait upon, to serve a host, technically to act as a Christian deacon. Again, this is where we get that, that 
that uh, ministry of deacon uh, to serve, to use the office of deacon. Now, here in the first century, they didn't have that office of deacon, but this is where we get that idea of deacon and servant. And so the English word that we often translate uh, diakoneo is the word serve or attend or wait upon. So I want us to reread part of this text, and I'll put the Greek word in where it goes so we can kind of see where this text is going. Verse 2, it says this, And the twelve called together the whole community of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait, diakoneo, on tables. Therefore, friends, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task, while we, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and serving, diakoneo, the word. You see it? Diakoneo on tables and diakoneo on the word. Now, this is good stuff here. Uh, You can see kind of a little bit of the wordplay there. Uh, But this is specifically the part of the story that I struggled with even before I saw the issues of bias and racism. This was the part of my story that I struggled with because it all had to do with my calling. And it was in my calling to do administration. And when I would tell people, yeah, I feel like I'm called to do administration, they'd look at me with a funny look and say, really? I didn't even know that was ministry. I didn't know administration was ministry. You know, most people look at at administration kind of like politics as a necessary evil. They don't see it as actual ministry. And, And that just kind of rubbed me the wrong way because I see everything as ministry. Anything we do, whatever our calling is, everything, if it's done for the glory of God, for the kingdom of God, is ministry. We all have different gifts. We all have different callings. As a pastor, my worth... My calling isn't any better than your worth or your calling. Your calling is just as important as mine. It just might be different. We, we are both, though, called to be ministers of the gospel. The only difference between, between you and me is I get paid to do it and you don't. Who's the smarter one here, right? <laughs> me, yeah. I get paid for it, you don't. That's the main difference between our callings. Everything we do is to be done for the kingdom of God, no matter what our work is. We're all ministers of the gospel. We each have different roles to play. But anyway, back to our story. We see the the 12 disciples who gather everyone together in the group. They come up with a solution to a problem that they have misdiagnosed. And I think they have come up with the wrong solution. But again, this is what I love about the story. And this is what I, I love about our stories as well. Because God can take our misdiagnosed problems and still work it for good. How often has, has God done that in your life where you have just been stupid and you, and you haven't suffered the ultimate consequences for your stupidity? Grace has been given to you. Yeah, is it just me or some of y'all experienced that same thing? Yeah, this is what I love about God. God can bring about good from our stupidity. God works in spite of our failings. So even though the disciples had the wrong problem, and the wrong solution, they picked the right people. I love it. It says this, friends, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the spirit and of wisdom. Never underestimate the power of a godly man or a godly woman to stand in the gap for the kingdom of God. Give me godly men and women every day 
I don't care what the problem is. We'll figure it out one way or another. That's what I want. Godly men and women, full of the spirit and wisdom. But I'm, but I'm fascinated by the response of the disciples uh, to this problem that has risen. Again, because they know the text about widows. They say this, we can't neglect the diaconeia of the word in order to diaconeia tables. Again, it's, it's written as a word play. We can't neglect the service of the word in order to wait on tables. Any of you been a waiter or waitress before? Yeah, tough job. I've never been a waiter or waitress. I am so thankful that I haven't had to do that job. I've had some tough jobs, but I'm so glad I haven't had to do that job. Uh, but we, we see that the disciples, they didn't want that job either. They didn't want to be in charge of a food distribution program. They said this, we can't neglect the word of God to wait tables. Anyone else see a problem in this? Is it just me? I think Luke did. Now, Again, he's the one who wrote Luke and Acts, and this is important for us, okay? So why is Luke and Acts two different books? Do you all know why? Technology. Technology of the first century was what? Papyrus scroll. They could make a papyrus scroll only so big. How big is a papyrus scroll? The Gospel of Luke. Acts is another papyrus scroll. That's why it's two volumes. Different technology, it would have been in one, one volume. And, and, and it doesn't help either that whoever was putting together the Bible, the New Testament, that they put John in between Luke and Acts. That doesn't help us either. But, but Luke and Acts are two parts of the same story. Luke is the gospel, the, the story of Jesus. Acts is the continuation from Jesus to the church. So again, this is important as we look at this text. We have two different halves of this same story. So if we turn back to the gospel of Luke... We see Jesus using the same Greek word, diakoneia, and specifically at the Last Supper. Remember the Last Supper right before Jesus is crucified? He is giving his disciples instructions on how to live, what's about to come upon them, how they're going to make it through, what they're supposed to do. This is important stuff. He's, he's showing them what it means to be his follower, that they're going to be persecuted. Uh, they won't get it immediately. It will take them time to learn all these lessons. And again, this is where I'm so thankful that Luke and the other writers share with us the good and the bad because it means I have hope. I, you know, it means that even though sometimes I don't get it, God doesn't give up on us. I, I don't know about you, but that, that brings me comfort. Even the 12 got it wrong sometimes. So when, when Luke is giving us the story in, in the Gospel of Luke of the Last Supper, he says that a dispute rises up about who is the greatest in the kingdom. And I'm sure Jesus is shaking his head going, I've just given you this great sermon on what we're, you're supposed to be. And you're asking me who's gonna be the greatest in the kingdom? What patience God has for us, doesn't he? That too is good news. Thank you, Lord, for your patience. And how does Jesus reply to the disciples? We read it in Luke 2227. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. 
Let me replace it with the Greek. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who diakoneus? Is it not the one at the table? But I am among you as one who diakoneus the table. Hmm. When you have the wrong problem, you come up with the wrong solution. Jesus has come to wait on tables. Compare that to what the disciples said. We can't neglect the word of God to wait tables, to diakonea tables. I think the apostles hadn't quite learned the lesson yet, even now. Now, I think they will come to learn this lesson completely. They'll continue to grow. And again, this is good news because we grow, we mature Jesus, though, says he is the one, the master, the one in charge, has come to wait tables. Jesus tells them point blank, I've come to serve. You are called to serve as well. Not just serve the word, but serve the table. When you have the wrong problem, you come up with the wrong solution. And I think Luke further highlights this ministry, this serving of the word and serving of the table by showing us how two of those seven men called to wait on tables, what do they do next? Well, let me share with you what those two men do next. He mentions Philip first. What does Philip do? Philip goes to Samaria and he evangelizes. He's the first evangelist. So again, if we go back in Luke and Acts, remember at the end of Luke and at the first of Acts, we see Jesus telling his disciples that you are gonna be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and the ends of the earth, right? That's what he told them to do. And in Acts, right in the beginning of Acts, he says, stay here until you receive the Spirit. Once you receive the Spirit, then you are going to fulfill that mission to be my uh, disciples, my ministers, my evangelists in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, right? And so what happens? They receive the Spirit and they stay in Jerusalem. So God's scratching his head and says, I got to get them out of here. So what does he do? This huge persecution comes on the Jerusalem church. And the text says, everyone scatters. Except the 12, they stay in Jerusalem. So Philip has to run for his life. He runs to Samaria and a revival breaks out, this huge revival. And what happens? Peter and James and John, they say, huh, let's go down and check out what's going on in Samaria. That's how the disciples get out of Jerusalem because Philip fulfilled the mandate that they were supposed to do. So we see that in Philip. Then in Stephen, you remember Stephen? Who is Stephen? He was the first martyr. In fact, Stephen, in all of the text, of all the people talked about, Stephen is the one most closely compared to Jesus in how he dies. The text says that, that Stephen is brought up on trial and Stephen gives this incredible sermon. And then the, the Jews are angry because uh, he says that Jesus is the Messiah. And so they begin to throw stones at him, to kill him. And what does Stephen do? He looks up to heaven and says, Father, take my spirit, receive my spirit, and do not hold this sin against them. How does Jesus die? He says, Father, take my spirit and do not hold these sins against them. So two of the waiters... We have no stories of them waiting tables or distributing food. 
but we do have a story of them being the first evangelist and the first martyr. I think Luke was trying to show us something. If we are to serve like Jesus, our calling is to serve the word and to serve the table. If we're going to serve like Jesus, our calling is to serve the word and to serve the table. And you know, during this time that we find ourselves in, I think this text is especially relevant to us. We need to examine our biases as we rub shoulders with people that are different from us and reflect on the fact that the least of these in the kingdom of God are who we are called to serve. In this story, it was the Hellenist widows. In our world, it might be someone else. In our world, when we see outcasts, we we need to check our biases first before we judge others. Before we offer solutions, we need to make sure that our house is in order first so that when we address the problem, we come up with the right solution. So the question for us today is, is how are you serving the word and how are you serving the table? No matter who's sitting at the table. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word and for for Luke, who shows us the good, the bad, and the and the ugly of the church. We still deal with that, Lord, because we so often misdiagnose problems because we are so hung up on ourselves and we think we are always correct. So God, I pray that you would humble us and that we would approach you and approach others with humility, with a willingness to learn and to grow, knowing the truth that we have in scripture, but knowing that the world needs salvation, the world needs answers that only you can provide. But only when we have checked our biases, only when we can truly diagnose and get to the heart of it. God, guide us in that truth. Guide us in all that we do. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.